0: Father, my prayer for us is that that song would be true, that you would be all to us. That it wouldn't be our relationships, our friendships, our marriage, our kids, our job, our stuff, our life. But rather, Jesus, you would be all to us. If you're Lord, if you're really Lord of our life, that's what you are. And I would just invite you to just to assume your rightful place in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that as we open the word that you would, uh, God, I pray that you would open our hearts. I just believe the people of God need, need to hear from God. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us clearly, boldly. Compellingly with conviction, that you'd speak to us, you'd change us, so that the glory of your name would be in the church, that we would bring you glory. And God, that's our prayer. So, Father, just have your way in every heart, as in every life, and we'll give all the glory to Jesus, because Jesus, you really are worthy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I mean, you could be seated. Uh, Take your Bibles, please. Grab your copy of the Word and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 45. Isaiah, chapter 45. Today, the journey begins. A couple of months ago, we were in, I guess we were in a staff meeting. I don't know if I said it or or, um, Dan said it, but one of us said, wouldn't it be cool to let people ask questions that they have about the Bible and about God? And we would just answer them, and we could make that a sermon series. And so, I was all for that. And so here we are today. We're going to start uh, dealing with that uh, issue. And so we're going to begin a series today called Your Questions, His Answers. And it's going to go uh, for a little while. I, I don't know how long. But I hope over the next few weeks to address some of those really compelling questions that you have about Christianity or about God or about the Bible. At least and let's open the Word and see what the Word of God has to say about some of them. Now, let me just tell you, we're not going to cover them all. We won't be able to do that. Um, but ho- and we may not answer them all to your satisfaction, but we will seek to bring some biblical truth to light regarding some of the things that you have. Now, anytime you begin a project uh, or a sermon series or, uh, or anything like that, you, you can either just kind of dance around the issue and tiptoe around, or you can jump right in. It's almost like when you go swimming. Uh, the other day we were at, uh, we took the girls up to, to Zilker Park. We rode our bikes around and went over. There's a, where the, at, at the bottom of the pool, the water kind of runs out and heads down to the lake. And, and so we rode our bikes up there. And, and it's, the water's pretty cold. And so we, it took me a while to work my way in. A, a good little while. I'll say more about that in a minute. But, but when it comes to swimming, you can either tiptoe in or you can just bail into it. Now, Bailey kind of bailed in. It took me, like I said, it took me a while. But this morning, what I want to do in this series, we're not going to tiptoe around some easy issues. I thought about doing a sermon on prayer today, and you know, that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a default. You know, you go to church, you can always talk about prayer. Not that it's not important, and we're going to talk about some really important stuff about prayer. But today, I, I, I'm jumping on what I think might be the hardest issue that we have, or at least maybe to this point. And we're going to tackle it. And uh, I think it's going to stretch your brain a little bit, at least it has stretched mine. And I hope it challenges you to think seriously about our faith. And that's what I want it to do. And the other thing I want to do is I want it to drive you and me to get into God's Word and see what God has to say about the difficult things in life. Because I'm telling you, God has the answers for life's deepest issues. And that's where we need to look. Today we're going to deal with this question, can you tell me... Where evil originated? Where did evil come from? In his book, Defending Your Faith, Dan Story writes, and he says this. He says, the problem of evil has been called the Achilles' heel of Christianity. Simply put, it claims that the God of Christianity is inconsistent and incompatible with the world around us. Christians claim that God is an all-powerful, loving being, yet evil and suffering are rampant in the world. So how do these facts mesh? Skeptics present it as a syllogism that goes something like this. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is perfect and good. God is love and God is holy. Yet a loving, holy, good God that knows everything and has all power lets evil exist in the world. Therefore, God really doesn't exist. And so a lot of people, when they look at what we say about God being who, who the Bible says he is, which we'll look at in a moment, when they look at that and they look at the evil around they say there's no consistency between a holy, powerful, all-knowing, righteous God that would allow suffering and evil into the world. And so that's a lot of skeptics' argument. And that's a good argument. And so we're going to open up the Word and we're going to look at what does the Bible have to say about this argument because it's kind of a compelling argument. If you don't understand what the, you know, the, the scriptural truth behind it, how do, you, how, do you, how do you debate that? And so let's read from the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to be all over the place. I hope you got your spiritual tennis shoes on because we're going to be looking at a bunch of verses. Isaiah 45. Let's stand together in honor of the Lord's Word. If you will join me, please. Verse 5. Isaiah 45. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says this. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I formed the light. And create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Thank you for standing and honoring the Lord's word. You can be seated. We're going to unpack this little passage of scripture here, um, and then we're going to go to a bunch of different places. But I want us to think about this whole subject for a few minutes. So let me just ask you, if if God really is good, then how do we explain evil and suffering? If God created the world and everything in it, then why is there suffering? Why is there evil? If God really is holy and He really is all-powerful, then how can He let some of the things happen it happens. I mean, how does that work? I mean, if he really is good, I mean, I mean, honestly, if God is as good as we say he is, then why do little kids get cancer and die? Why does that happen? If God is really good as we say that he is, how can tsunamis come in like the one in the Indian Ocean a few years ago and just wash away thousands of people? How, 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 how do we reconcile that? How, how, do, how do we deal with that if God's really good? If, he, if that's who he really says he is. And so these are, these are questions that we have to wrestle with. And, and as Christians, you know, a lot of times we just, we don't know how to answer it. And as John MacArthur says, what we like to do is, we like to punt. We just like to say, well, you know, uh, God just keeps everything secret. But that's really not a good enough answer. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want us to, to wrestle uh, with this topic of evil and how, how does it work? Where did it come from? Why is it here? How do we explain it? And so um, we got a few minutes to do that. I don't know that we'll get everywhere, but let's just deal with... And I'm going to ask a couple questions and try to answer them. And so if you'd like to take notes, this would be a good uh, time to take notes. Uh, so first question, let's deal with. Number one, does evil really exist? Does evil really... Exist, and uh, there, you know, you say that's a dumb question. Everybody knows evil exists. Well, actually, they don't. Not every religion. In fact, Christian, the Christian Science, uh, Mary Baker Eddy's group, said that evil's an illusion, and that uh, sickness isn't really real. And they they honestly believe that. I'm not. I'm not making that up. They honestly believe that. And. And yet we know that there's a lot of evil in the world around us. Most people, except the Christian scientists and maybe a few more that are, that are way out on the fringe or maybe way out on the margin, would acknowledge that evil does exist and that it is real and that it actually does happen. And whether you believe in God or don't believe in God, whether you're a Christian scientist, even if you don't believe in evil, you think it's an illusion, the reality is evil, uh, sooner or later, uh, evil, suffering, sickness, it's going to affect all of us because it's just a fact. It is a product of, uh, literally, of the fall. So so let's talk about evil for a minute. What, what are the different kinds of evil? Let me just give you a couple. Uh, first of all, there's natural evil, natural evil. You say, what do you mean by natural evil? Uh, disasters. Uh, diseases catastrophes that's the kind of stuff we're talking about uh you know we think man uh we went we was out somewhere the other night and got bit by a mosquito and then we got home and got to thinking about the west nile virus so uh-oh so, you know and then you started you know has that ever happened to you you get one bite and then you start itching everywhere and you start you know and so i got to checking out i mean how how does how do we have west nile virus this is america right that's not supposed to happen here, and yet uh, hundreds of people are sick. Over twenty are dead in the you know, North Texas area already. But I mean, the disease is just—it's kind of a natural. That is a natural evil. Then we have, uh, you know, any kind of catastrophe. I mentioned the tsunamis. You know what happens with tornadoes, like we saw in Missouri last year, or, or what happens with uh, with hurricanes, or, or you know. So just think—I mean—from sickness all the way to tsunamis, and from the viruses all the way to the volcanoes, there is this thing called natural evil. Stuff just happens, and it brings about suffering and sickness and death, not just loss of life, but loss of livelihood and and property and all these different things. And so there's natural evil. It's just a reality. It is part of life. And, And yet, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, that the earth was cursed. And so natural evil is a result of the fall. The earth's just cursed. But it's not just natural evil. There's another category. We'll call it moral evil. And uh, it's the result of human sin and disobedience and transgression. It is personal and it is the result of man's choices. It has its root in man's decision to disobey and dishonor God by ignoring moral standards. You know, a lot of people, you know, they say they blame God for stuff that men, men literally choose, make a moral choice, a moral decision to do something, and it results in sin. Now, this idea of moral evil has its roots in man's decision uh, to to ignore God's moral standard. And... uh Kind of give you, I'll tell you this story. I think it might relate. We'll see if we can connect it. I told you we went up to Zilker Park the other day, and you know, and there's just standards. You know, you go out in public, there's just things that you do. So we're up there. We'd already jumped in the water. We're wading around, looking around. Family comes on. They got a two or three year old boy, and the mom comes down. She picks him up. She begins to pull his shorts off. And I thought, uh oh, what's happening here? And so she kind of strips him down to his underwear and at least he didn't have on a, a diaper, you know, or whatever. And so he begins to walk in the water and I thought, oh, yeah, it's no big deal, he's a kid. Well, I turn around and look across the pond and here comes a guy that's like 22. And he's got on his boxers and I ain't talking about bathing suit boxers. And I thought, really? And then behind him, there's another guy. And he doesn't have on boxers. He's got kind of the long Fruit of the Loom briefs on. And I'm thinking, we got mamas and daddies. I, my little girls are here. There's other little girls here. And these grown-up men are stripping down to their underwear, and they're going to go swimming. And I don't know if anybody told them, but underwear don't have a string on it. And that current, you know. And, I, and I'm just thinking, this this could not, this could end bad. And and so I'm just and I'm thinking, man. We got kids here, don't you? Now, I understand maybe maybe grown men swimming in their underwear in a public setting with men, women, and little kids around, maybe that's not moral evil. It's at least moral ignorance. I think it would say that. <laughs> and moral disrespect. <laughs> but, but but here's here's the principle. You know, sometimes we choose to not live up to the standard. And when we choose not to live up to God's standard, it results in, in sin, which is moral evil. And so men make choices. Women make choices. Kids make choices to disobey God's standard. And the result is moral evil. That's why we have murder. That's why we have rape. That's why we have child molestation. That's why we have burglary. And, and you just go, you just go on down the list. You going down the line. And so our world is filled. There's this evil in the world. And a lot of times, I mean, you'll read some of this. I don't know how it works for you, but sometimes I'll get online and I'll read about some of the stuff that people do. And I'm just thinking, how how could, how could you do that? How can a mother kill their kids? How can a, how can a kid murder their grandparents? How, how does that work? It's just evil. It's because we make a moral decision a choice to not live up to God's standard and the result, the overarching result is moral evil. And so we live in a world that's got natural evil and then we live in a world that's got moral evil. And then I would say thirdly, there's also what we might call supernatural evil. That's kind of the spirit realm and, and don't, you know, don't get carried away and, and, uh, and think that, that I'm getting a little twilight zone here. But think about this. Satan chose to rebel against God, and when he chose to rebel against God, a third of the angels in heaven went with him. And so there is spiritual warfare, there's spiritual evil that goes on in the spiritual realm all around us, and it has an effect on where we live and what we do and what happens in our lives. And so there's supernatural evil, there's moral evil, there's, there's this natural evil. And then John MacArthur even argues that there's eternal evil, and that's the evil that, that will exist in hell when Satan and his angels and all those that choose to reject Christ, when they're cast into hell, into the lake of fire, his argument is that it, you know it's, it's a place of darkness and wickedness and torment. You know, it'll be evil because, it's, it, because God's not there. And so when we ask that first question, does evil exist? And the answer is absolutely. And so what we know is that we live in a world that has evil. Some of it of our own choosing, some of it out of our control, but it's a reality. Second question, it's loosely connected. And the second question I would ask is, we know evil out here, so what about God? Is, Is God who he says he is? Is is the God of the Bible, is the Christian God, the one that we talk about, is He really who we say He is? And that requires that we make some assumptions. If you were with us last week, uh, we made what I hope is a compelling, logical case for the reliability and the infallibility of God's Word. It's unique like no other book. It's historic. When it speaks of history, it's accurate. When it speaks to science, it's accurate. When it speaks prophetically, it's accurate. When it speaks theologically, it's accurate. Textually, there's more evidence for the Bible, uh, much more evidence for the Bible than any other ancient uh, writing of any kind, just far more. And so when you look at all those reasons, maybe in of themselves, none of those reasons mean the Bible should, but when you put them all together and then you factor in the fact that the message of the Bible has the potential and the power to change people's lives, listen, it's a reliable, infallible, Revelation of who God is. Now, if that's true, if the Bible's true, and that's our premise, that the Bible's true, then what does it say? Who does it say the God we worship is, and what does it say about Him? Well, let's look at a couple verses. If you have your copy of the Word, uh, turn left over to Second Chronicles, Second, or excuse me, First Chronicles twenty-nine. I'm going to read two verses. Um, says, Yours, O Lord, this is talking about God, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything and the heaven and earth is Yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from You. You are the ruler of all things. In Your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. And so God, uh, you know, God is who we say He is. He is an omnipotent, all-powerful God. He is an all-knowing God, according to the Scriptures. He, 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 is, he is a perfect God. He has splendor, and the connection with splendor is with holiness. He has majesty beyond our ability to comprehend. And so, that, so the, that's who Scripture says He is. Secondly, Psalm 115.3. Go ahead and pop that back on the screen. I won't even look it up. Uh, our God is in heaven. He does what please, whatever pleases Him. We should mark this in our Bible. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases us. No, that's not what it says. But many of us as Christians, we want a God who pleases us. We want a God who does what we think he should do. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does whatever pleases him. And then uh, over to Daniel. Go back past Isaiah to Daniel chapter 4. That print, Daniel was kind of the prince of prophets. Uh, listen, remember King Nebuchadnezzar uh, blasphemed God and God, I mean, he, he went insane for like seven years and went out and grazed like a cow. Well, here's what happened. When, this is what happened when he come back. God brought him to his senses. Listen to what this guy said. Now, keep in mind, he's the most powerful man in the world at this time. He'd be equated with the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. Here's what he says, verse 35. It says, all the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does, talking about God, he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so the Bible speaks... To God's majesty and the Bible speaks to God's glory and the Bible speaks to God's power that he is omnipotent, that he's omniscient, that he's omnipresent, that he's transcendent, that he knows everything that he has power over everything and he controls everything that's the God that is revealed in scripture and he does whatever he chooses to do now whatever he chooses to do is governed by the fact that he's completely holy It's governed by the fact that He's completely perfect. It is governed by the fact that He is absolutely righteous and absolutely just and there is no imperfection in Him. But nevertheless, in the context of who He is, who is perfect, God does whatever He chooses to do and whatever He is pleased to do. And that may be what we or I think He should do and it may not be what I think He should do, but it does not matter. It's God's universe. He can do it. Anyway, he wants to uh one of the theologians one of the radio preachers i can't even remember his name right now I, a few years ago he made the statement he said you may have a better plan but you don't have a universe you may not like god's plan but he owns the universe and at the end of the day the god of the bible is in control and he he does what he says and what he wants and what he chooses to do and so think about this. So we got these the idea, okay, here's here's this evil that, that we suffering, sickness, all the things that happen. And then on the other hand, here's a God that's absolutely perfect. He's holy, he's just he's righteous. And so the question is how can a God that is perfect, how can a God who is perfect allow evil and suffering and stuff in his universe? That at the end of the day. That's what we got to wrestle with. How can, how, can we, how can you reconcile those two? And skeptics would say, you can't reconcile them. And a lot of Christians would say, I can't reconcile. I don't understand that either. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look in the Scriptures and see how the Bible deals with the issue because it's really kind of interesting. Now, it may not, it's probably not going to help a skeptic, but it should help us understand more about God. And so let's go to a third question, all right? If God is who He says He is, and if evil exists, and we know it does, then the third question would be, who is responsible for evil? Now, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, who's responsible for it? The Christian scientists say, well, it doesn't exist. You know, some people say, well... I think man's responsible. And others would say, oh, no, man's not responsible. Satan is responsible. And then others would say, certainly God has to be responsible. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's in control of everything. And so that's kind of the question. Does God will evil? Does God ordain evil? Does God allow evil? And if God doesn't allow it, Has he abdicated his responsibility, his authority to someone else? And so these are all the different questions that we need to wrestle with. If we're going to come to a solution, a biblical solution on who is responsible for evil, these are some questions that we got to answer. And so let me just give you a couple uh, arguments that people are a couple propositions that people would make. First proposition is kind of a metaphysical thing. And the idea is that, that if there's good, then by nature, there has to be the opposite. So if, on one hand, if there's good, then on the other hand, there has to be evil, right? If you're gonna have good, you know, if you got light, you gotta have what? Dark. So if you have good, you gotta have evil, or you gotta have bad. So that's kind of the premise. It's just, that's kind of a, that's kind of the ideology. And, but the problem is, that's just not sufficient, that doesn't sufficiently explain the issue. At all. Well, God created the world and it was good. That automatically mean that there has to be evil. So that's not a sufficient explanation. And so others would suggest that evil is the result of of God loving creation so much that He gave us free will and that free will resulted in Adam and Eve's sin and consequently all of us have sinned to come short of the glory of God. But the idea being because God wanted to give man free moral choice, the most important issue for God was for, for men to have choice and when men were able to choose, some of them chose, like the guys in, at the swimming hole the other day, to not live up to the standard. Now, there's a, a little bit of merit for that, but that, that doesn't really explain the whole issue. Because some people would say, well, yeah, but, it, but see, it's, it's man's choice. And God's given His choice, so ultimately it's man's responsibility. In fact, one author said it this way. He said, he said the presence of evil in the world today can be laid upon man, not God. And so the issue I have with that is God is in heaven doing whatever he pleases. God is in control of the whole universe. God's not simply going to abdicate that just to man. So it's not just, it can't be just man's responsibility because after all, Adam and Eve were in the garden and it was perfect and the serpent came along. And so it has to predate Adam and Eve. Because Satan came and tempted them with evil. And so the more we look at this issue, the, the, the more confusing it becomes. And the more difficult it is to try to honestly explain and understand how that could work. So the, so the issue is what, is, what does the Bible say? When, when we look at things, when, when different things are recorded in Scripture... Uh, about suffering and murder or, or killing or judgment or difficulties. Where does, where does the Bible say it comes from? Cause that's kind of the question. Cause I mean, that's the hard issue. I mean, let's be honest. What, what the, what your atheist friends want to know is how can a loving good God, how can over in the Old Testament, he be responsible for so many people that, that were slaughtered? And kingdoms that were annihilated. How, how can a good loving God be responsible for that? Now it, we gotta have a solution, or at least an explanation, a reasonable explanation. And so we need to address that issue. So let's, let's just look at the scriptures. Before we do, I want to share a thought from uh, Matthew Chandler, uh, Matt Chandler up at the village church. He made this observation. He says the Bible, this is interesting. He says the Bible does not try in any way to hide God's involvement in evil events to come about, or in evil events to come about, or evil deeds being done, he says the Bible does not attempt to try to hide God's involvement. But a lot of times we do. We we want to get God off the hook, so we say, "Well, it's it's all man's fault, or it's all the devil's fault, or it's just by nature. If you have good, you got to have evil." But that's that's not a good enough answer. And so, what does the Bible? say. Well, let's look at a couple passages of Scripture, a couple stories that you're very familiar with. Tur- turn your Bibles back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Go to chapter 45 while you're finding your way there. Let me tell you the story. You know the story. We learned about it in Sunday school. Joseph was the, was the favorite brother. He his father gave him the coat of many colors. He, his brothers were jealous. You know the story. One night, Joseph has a dream, and his dream is that his brothers are going to bow down to him. And so he gets up and goes to breakfast and says, Guess what, guys? I had this dream last night, and one day y'all are going to bow down at my feet. Now, that's a, good, that's a great way to start your day, isn't it? If you've got ten brothers that are older than you, bigger than you, and meaner than you. But that's what he did. Wasn't very smart, but he did that. And, and you kind of know the story. Uh, we all learned about it and we've heard about it. Well, things rock along, and he, his father sends him out to, uh, to find his brothers. They're out herding sheep. And when he comes out there, guess what happens? They, they take him and they throw him in a pit. Now, some of them wanted to kill him, and some of them wanted to let him go. And so along comes a caravan, and they say, Oh, we can sell him. And so, so first they kidnap him. Second, they, they deal with human trafficking. They sell him, uh, and he goes down to Egypt. He's bought by Potiphar, and he goes into Potiphar's house, and he begins to work for Potiphar, and he does all these good things. But then all of a sudden, he's accused of rape by Potiphar's uh, wife. She's an immoral, ungodly, whatever. I don't know what else she is, but she, she accuses him of attempted rape. And so things aren't going well for Joseph. He's been kidnapped. We would call that evil. He's been a victim of human trafficking. Pretty evil. He's been accused falsely of rape. Pretty evil. None of us want that to happen to us. None of us want that to happen to our kids. And yet the question is, whose responsibility was that? Sure, his brothers sold him into bondage. They did. No question. The caravan going to egypt they bought him they're guilty of human trafficking no question potiphar's wife she wrongly falsely accused him of rape no question Uh, they're guilty but are they ultimately the ones who ordained it and that's the question now look with me at chapter 45 verse 5 now fast forward a little bit joseph gets out of jail becomes second in in egypt Becomes powerful, the you know, the um, the famine hits, more suffering, by the way, and uh, Israel, everybody in Israel, including his family, are starving to death. So they come down to Egypt, and then he gathers them all in a room, and then listen to what he says, verse 5. He says, And now do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God, now just look at this next statement, that God sent me ahead of you. The Bible says God sent Joseph ahead of Israel. And so God ordained evil, God allowed evil, God willed evil in Joseph's life so that down the road he could save Israel. And so that brings us to a an interesting phenomenon that we really have struggled with, and that is the sovereign will of God that ordains and allows evil and the human responsibility of man that carries out evil. Now, that is, this is just one of many, many examples in Scripture. You know the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. In fact, turn over a couple, uh, just go to your right to Exodus 4, just four or five chapters. Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. It says, The Lord said to Moses, remember, God's called him, he's seen the burning bush, God's sent him back to deliver his people. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. God says, I've given you the power to do, but listen to this statement. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay, Pharaoh's the one that wouldn't let them go. Pharaoh's the one that made them that increased their level of bricks. Pharaoh's the one that made them do more work and required more of them. Pharaoh's the one that punished them. But God said, I hardened his heart. And so we got this tension that God ordains and allows, and yet man carries it out. We can see that in the life of Samson, we can see that a lot of times in the life of Israel, we can see that in the life of King David. Even over, uh, let me give you another example. Go to the, go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter uh, 25. That's back to, um, go back past Isaiah. Jeremiah 25, great example. Chandler notes this example, and it's really interesting because listen to verse 9, and then I think we'll jump down to verse 12. But in verse 9, he says, he says, I will summon, he's talking to Israel. They've, let me set this up. When, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt and took them into the promised land, he said, if you'll obey me and you'll honor me and, and you'll worship me and you'll serve me, I will bless you and I'll honor you. But he says, if you don't, if you worship the other gods, if you take their other gods, worship their idols and practice their religion and, and, and turn away from me, then I'm going, to, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to discipline you or punish you. And so that's what God promised him. Well, verse 9 says, it says, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. We just heard about him. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. And so God said, here's what God says. God says, I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar is going to come over to Israel and Nebuchadnezzar is going to execute judgment. He's going to bring evil into the life of Israel. Okay, so God allowed, in fact, God ordained that, and yet Nebuchadnezzar carried that out. God's sovereign will, Nebuchadnezzar's choice to control the world, and he goes and takes over Israel. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 12. This is where it really gets even more interesting. It says, but when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon, and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. And I will make it desolate forever. Now, think with me about this concept. Now, this is going to be hard to get your brain around. At least it's hard for me to get my brain around. But I want you to to, see this. There's this tension that's created here. Just think with me. God's sovereign will allows and ordains that, that evil, that judgment against Israel to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, man's personal choice, wanting to control the world, he comes and carries out God's purpose for Israel. Okay. So you got, you got God's sovereign will. You got man's responsibility. And then, Nebuchadnezzar is accountable for his wrong choice, even though his wrong choice carried out God's plan and purpose. Now, how do we, that is hard to get our minds around. And a lot of people say, well, Mike, that, that's, that's not fair. A lot of people say, well, you know, that, I, I don't really uh, know and understand. It's just more than we can comprehend. And yet that is a, that is a scriptural truth. That doesn't just happen here. There's this principle that, that I want us to understand. When it comes to evil, God has this plan for the ages and his plan is to bring glory to himself. And part of that is to allow evil into the world. And somehow God, somehow God in his sovereign will causes men to make choices that result in evil. Yet that evil accomplishes God's purposes. And even in the context of that evil accomplishing God's purposes, the men are still accountable for their action. Now you said that's a lot, okay but I want to show you another example because I know some of you are thinking I, I don't i I can't get that go to uh, go to acts chapter two acts chapter two put your thumb there and turn back to luke twenty two this is I don't know that it's going to make sense but it's going to bring us to a point here in just a second acts two and then luke twenty two now, I want to read Luke 22, and then we'll go to the book of Acts. All right, Luke 22, verse 22. Let me begin in verse 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, Jesus, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now, listen. So, so here they are. They're gathered around the table, and Judas is there. But Judas is there, the traitor, the, the devil, the son of the devil. He's right there with him. And listen to what Jesus says to him. Verse 22. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed or been determined. Who determined that the Son of Man would be betrayed and crucified? God. See, the Bible says that he was slain before the foundation of the world. God decreed it. God ordained it. And yet... Look at the rest of the phrase. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. God ordained the crucifixion, yet God caused Judas to carry it out by a sinful, willful choice. And in addition to that, Judas was responsible for his behavior now i know that's kind of heavy but look at chapter two of, of uh it, it affirms it in acts chapter two verse 23 it says this man was handed over to you by god set purpose this man was handed over this man jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help now look at this with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross and so here's 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 what I want us to get our hands around. There's this tension between God's sovereign will and God allowing and, in effect, ordaining evil and man's responsibility for making choices that carry out that evil. And there's this this tension. And, I mean, as I've studied for this message and read and learned and listened and prayed, man, I I understand. I feel this tension. How, How does that... How how do we understand God's completely sovereign? If he's good, how's God completely sovereign? And yet, God somehow moves in men's hearts to carry out his plan. And yet, God never does anything evil. God never does anything sinful. Yet, creatures do. And when they do, it accomplishes God's purpose. Now, I don't know how that works for you. That's a lot to wrap my hands around. That is a whole lot to wrap my hands around. And you know what a lot of people say? But Mike, that's not fair. It it is not fair for God to ordain evil and cause men to choose to do evil and then them to be punished. People say, well, that's not fair. But God is perfectly sovereign and He's perfectly holy. And God is in heaven doing as he pleases. So so how does this all work? Why would why would God do that? I mean, why would God do that? And let me just tell you why. And I know it's hard for understanding, but let me just tell you why. The reason God does that is because God uses everything to bring glory to himself. God will use everything to bring glory to himself. And God was willing when you think that's not fair, just think about this. God was willing to let his own son be killed. To let his own son, his one and only, be killed. Delivered up, God decreed. Delivered up, betrayed by a deceptive devil. Crucified by wicked men. God allowed that to happen. To bring glory to himself. Why? So, so you and me could be forgiven. And could be trophies of His grace for for eternity. And so so God, understand this, God has a higher purpose than we could ever imagine. But what we know is that God uses everything, evil included, God uses everything to accomplish His purpose. And His purpose is to bring glory to Himself for eternity. In fact, His purpose is for you to be a a trophy of His grace. Just real quickly, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter two, because here, here's the deal. I want to kind of, I'll wrap up with with this thought. Well, maybe one more. This thought and one more. Ephesians two. Li- listen, let me begin reading verse four. It says, it says, in um, verse three says, like the rest, we were we were by nature objects of wrath. In other words, we were sinners. We were separated from God. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raises, raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this statement. God made you alive if you're a Christian. God raised you up if you're a Christian. God has seated you, uh, God has seated you spiritually at the right hand of God and, and here's why in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, i.e., bring glory to himself expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So here's, at the end of the day, here's what it boils down to. God is willing to use anything and everything and will use anything and everything to bring glory to himself. And the way, the great way that he brings glory to himself is to redeem sinners like you and me. And so God killed his son, allowed his son to be killed on the cross. He allowed his son to experience evil so you and I could have life in his name. And either you're going to be a trophy of his grace, you're going to bring glory to God by being a trophy for his grace throughout all of eternity. Or if you reject God, and you endure God's wrath, you're going to bring glory to him. Because when God exercises his perfect wrath, it will demonstrate his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Now, people say that's harsh. Okay. But it's the reality. It's the reality. Now, I know, I know some of you are thinking, Mike, that's not fair. That's not fair. I'll we'll give you a homework assignment. Homework assignment for this, week. So you need to write this down. The last five chapters of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, you need to read the first couple chapters at least. But I want you to read the last five chapters because Job comes to God and says, God, you're not fair. And when you read chapter 38 and 39 and 40 and 41, God deals with the issue. I'm not going to give it away. I just want you to read it. Now I know some of you are thinking, "You said it's confusing, and this is more like I oh, handle." It's okay. God is okay with that, that we can't understand all this. But what He's not okay with is that we're not willing to search the Scriptures and live by faith. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. You know, if this is, if you say I can't get my hands on that, right get in the book. You know, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about what God wants to do. Because at the end of the day, God wants to cause everything to bring glory to himself. And he's even willing, and he does, even use evil to bring glory to himself. Now, let me... Matt Chandler says this, and I'll loosely quote it. And I promise I'll be done with this. He said, We cannot intellectually... We cannot fathom how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility can fit together. We can't put it all together and understand it perfectly. And so we simply have to decide to go by faith. And so just at the end of the day, know this. Know that God is God was willing and chose to even use evil so that you can you and I could experience the highest good. That's what the cross is—ugly, murderous, scandalous, evil—and He did it so we could be forgiven. Let's pray together, Father, as we. Um, God, as we tackle theological questions like this, there is more than we can comprehend sometimes. God, sometimes it's hard for us to to literally be able to understand how both of those can be true. And yet, Father, the Scripture has no trouble with the tension between uh, the sovereignty of God... And God ordaining all things, including evil, to conduct his plan. It has no problem with that and with man's responsibility and accountability for his choices. And so, God, we just trust what you say. And we just trust what you expect us to do. Now, Father, I know that this is more apologetics, and I understand that we've really gotten off into some really deep water here this morning. But yet... At the end of the day, the gospel is that you allowed your son to experience evil so we could experience the ultimate good. That is life in his name. And God, I know in the auditorium this size, there's uh, some men and women, perhaps some students, that have never given their life to Christ. And God, my hope for them would be to realize that this God that, that is in heaven doing as he pleases and that is omnipotent and powerful and mighty and perfect and just and holy and righteous is also gracious and so loving that He gave His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sin so that we could have life in His name. And Father, my prayer this morning is that if there's one here who's never surrendered their life to Christ, that they would choose today to set aside all the wonders and even the doubts and say, by faith, I'm going to trust God. By faith, I'm going to turn from my sin and open my heart to Jesus. God, my prayer is that even at this moment, they would invite Christ to come live in their heart and to be their Lord and Savior. Father, we're going to receive our offering this morning, and, and I pray that as we prepare to give it, Lord, it would be a, um, it'd be a love gift. It would be a, uh, an act of worship, Father, that we would just take the, what you've given to us and give it to you as just a a love gift to say thank you God for allowing your son to die for my sins and not for mine alone but for the sins of the whole world then God I pray that you'd use our offerings to tell the story of Jesus not just here but all over the world and when it's all said and done we'll give you the honor and the glory and we ask it in Jesus name